You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I'm just really excited to be here. I've gotten to know Joe a little bit over the years. Christy, we just kind of met recently over in Nebraska City. We got together. Thanks for sending Joe and Christy over to... um, the uh, pastor's renewal retreats, you know, just a time to, to actually rest and relax. That was really great. And, uh, you know, I'm, my heart is church planting, and you'll understand a little bit about that. My background is Roman Catholic. I came up in the, in the Catholic church. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I came to Christ when I was uh, a younger kid. And, and part of the, uh, the reality of that was I was in a home where my parents weren't doing so hot. And, um, and they had gone to this Catholic church, Capaldo, you know, and the, my grandfather actually lived in Grand Island. He was like the godfather just up the road. And, uh, and so it was a unique time in my life. And the, the priest in town was having some substance abuse issues. And, and so my, my parents didn't feel freedom to go there. And they ended up at a little Baptist church on the north side of town. And the pastor offered them some counseling just to assist them while they were just in their big mess of life. And, uh, and then I got put into this new Fandangle child care program called Sunday School. And, uh, and it was at that time that a, that a teacher, just like the gals teaching the kids here and the guys were involved in this, what they did, they just took me from where I was, opened up the scriptures, understood that from my upbringing I viewed the Bible as, a, as an authority at least, and they, they told me about Jesus and how to have a relationship with Jesus. So at 11 years old, I confessed what God was doing in my heart, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for my sins. He rose again from the grave and uh, rose on the third day. And uh, I confessed my faith in Christ, and it changed my life forever. From that time on in my life, um, am I on? Okay. From that time on in my life, I, I have to say that I, I just feel like I've been extremely blessed I, I had a mentor in my life, even young in life, that taught me some very foundational items about just a daily quiet time with God, reading my Bible on a daily basis and praying, just discipled me. I'm excited to read about the life-on-life type of discipleship that's going to get going here. I'm telling you, man, it made all the difference in my life. If you open up and allow yourself to be teachable and taught and mentored by somebody else with the intention of, of doing that again in somebody else's life, you, you don't... I'm telling you, some of you have maybe experienced this already, but it is the greatest blessing. It's the greatest blessing to have biblical accountability. It's the greatest blessing to pour your life into somebody else. And it's, it's just how God intended it. And so I had a dude pour his life into me, and uh, it changed me. And by the time I was 14 years old, I mean, this guy was a major mentor in my life. And, and uh, by the time I was 14, doing my devotions, reading my Bible on a daily basis, here I was, kneeling by my bed after my paper out. Uh, God got a hold of me. A verse in the book of Isaiah, whom shall I send, who will go for us, was what the angel of the Lord was asking. And then here am I, is what Isaiah said. Here am I, send me. And so from that point on in my life, God has put me in basically church planting atmospheres, whether that was starting Bible study groups in my public high school, going to brand new communities because my family didn't make it, I ended up needing to move around. I don't know how many of you, that's your story, had to move around a bit through brokenness. Um, but that was definitely my story. Um, and then even, and even when I was going to uh, undergraduate school, 
um, just starting up youth groups and churches, starting things from scratch with people that I have never met before. And so to see a church plant um, get going here in Hastings is amazing. I actually have family in Hastings. Uh, anybody know any of the Coover family here in town? Maybe you do. Uh, maybe you know some of them. But uh, anyway, Coovers are family on my grandmother's side. And so the, uh, the, uh, the thing is, is God just led my wife and I. My wife and I are high school sweethearts. And uh, we felt the Lord's leading to get overseas into an unreached tribe of the world. What I mean by that, there are places in this world that maybe you're aware of, maybe you're not. Places that literally do not even have any gospel witness, period. It does, there's not a Catholic church down the street or an Episcopal church. I mean, I think this town has got a serious, serious issue with red brick churches. You guys, we came in, we're like, hey, there's a Presbyterian church. Holy cow, it goes down like eight blocks, you know, as we look down. And uh, no, it's, there's another red brick church. And then one across the street, red bricks. You know, it was, uh, it, it actually, it's very pretty. Um, but there wasn't even that type of a scenario for us. We went into a region called the Republic of Tuva. Um, the Republic of Tuva is a tribal region. Um, they are Buddhists. They are um, animists. Or they, they worship nature. Um, they weren't even Russian Orthodox. They were very Asian-looking, Mongolian, living in yurts. And we lived along the Mongolian and Russian border for 11 years. And, uh, and we studied Russian at Novosibirsk State University. And I remember after a couple years of language study and really learning the culture and really mastering the languages, the tribal language and then the Russian language, I remember looking around in this area, and here I was, this Italian kid who came off of, you know, out of Iowa, Nebraska corridor, and, and, and what am I doing here? I look around, and there is not a single person that even remotely looks like me. Um, we find that often, don't we, Joe, Italians out here? I tell you, we got the height advantage, though, don't we? All right. So, uh, you know, when you look at this, I looked around. And I just looked around, and you know what my, here's what my aim was, and this is what my passion has been for my entire life, and this is what our passion is for our Converge Heartland District, what you're a part of. Our vision, if God gave us everything, every resource, every opportunity to see people come to Christ, this is what we want to see. We want to see a gospel-centered church bringing transformation to every Heartland community. And I promise you, there is more than one community in Hastings, Nebraska. This is an urban center. There are lots of communities here. But then there are also rural communities that are more just a singular community. Tons of communities throughout our Heartland region. And when I landed over on this overseas soils, that was my passion there too. To see a gospel-centered church bringing transformation to every one of these Siberian communities. And I had them numbered. Numbered. Twelve 1,500 unchurched communities. Unchurched. No churches, period. All right? And so what do we do with that? What do we do? In the republic where I was at, in that state of Siberia and Russia, there were over 100 communities that had no churches at all. And so what do we do? We just dig in. And I remember digging in. And I had to embrace reality. And that's what I've named this. As a matter of fact, I've given you a little sheet that you can follow along with. I hope you choose to do that. I think there's going to be some things to take away for your own life. Um, and, and for the life stage of where your church is right now, where you are in this church, I had to embrace reality. I say, God, here I am. I'm in Ok Davrak, Republic of Tuva. It's a town of about 35,000 people, not too much smaller than Hastings, Nebraska. 
And it was really three towns put together, made up of nomads, living in primitive, primitive ways, no running water, no, no plumbing. They pumped water from wells, you know, and outhouses and, and living in log cabins. It was very primitive. And the one business that they had, and I don't know what you would say is your number one industry here outside of agriculture, but I'm sure you have some manufacturing here as well. But the issue for us was there was one asbestos mine. It was the largest, the world's largest open pit asbestos mine. Now that's something to be really proud of, isn't it? My town has the largest asbestos mine. But you know what that asbestos mine did? Of course, you would imagine, what, what do we think of when we think of asbestos? Yeah, you think of a, a type of cancer. Well, that entire community was walking around and the vast majority had cancer. When you have cancer, what are the kind of questions that you're asking? You're asking questions about what's after, what's after this life. All of a sudden, you become a little bit more open to spiritual things than what you ever have been before. And God seemed to just place us in a place right at the right time. But my big question to the Lord was, Lord, here's what I want to see. I want to see a sustainable, gospel-centered church planted here and in the next community and in the next community and in the next one. And how do I do that? How do I do that? I had just learned the language, but just speaking the language doesn't necessarily get you there. You have to learn the culture. And I started making observations, and this was part of the culture. Anybody ever watch that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Remember that, where he's coming back, and he's like playing with a lighter? Like, wow, all I have to do is flick this, and I can start fire, whereas before he had blisters on his hands. Well, that was kind of our scenario when I come to the United States after living in Siberia, I look, at a, I look at, a, uh, at a thermostat like that. Because for 11 years, I stoked coal fires. And I pumped water into little bins that would circulate water down through pipes in our house to create a convection heat. And I spent hours and hours and hours and hours in this little coal room. It's called a kachigarka. Say that with me. Say kachigarka. All right, now you speak Russian. Congratulations. Okay? And it was in this Kachigarka that I began to ask God, Lord, here I am, a foreigner in a strange land, and I've got a passion to see a church planted here. I've got a passion to see this thing rise up and be completely indigenous. There are three things that we wanted to see of a church plant. Same three desires that we want to see here, that you guys would be self-sustaining financially, that you would be self-governing in a biblical way, and that you would be self-propagating. That word just simply means that you reproduce yourselves many times over. Churches that plant churches. Those are three primary goals of, I, I would say, legitimate church planting hearts. And that's what we wanted to see. And that's what I desire to see here. That's what Joe desires to see here. That's what you guys, your leadership, you're working towards. But how do we get there? And I began just to pray, God... What would you do? And my, my embracing of reality had to do with not just looking around my community and my culture, but really what God did is he helped me embrace a reality that, Jim, this is the reality. My word endures forever. Regardless of the culture that you are in, my word holds the responses and the answers to the questions you're asking. And my embracing of reality was just a subtle calling of God. I asked the Lord many times, Lord, I'm way over here. I'm on foreign soils. Are you seriously going to waste my time stoking coal fires all the time, day in and day out? Are you seriously going to do that? 
I should be out there doing something. But what the Lord was really doing is he was calling me not to be isolated in Siberia, but into solitude with him. Solitude. Just to seriously meditate on the things of God. And as I pumped water and as I stoked a coal fire, he drew me into some of the greatest and most beautiful time that helped shape me and helped shape my thinking about what it takes and what, what a church plant and, and how to connect with community and how to have the right heart when it comes to sustainability and where do we go when it's time to reproduce and how do we do that? So the Lord was giving me answers, helping me to embrace a biblical reality that had been historically discipled into me, okay? So here I go. God calls me back into his word, and this is what he taught me. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, with the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie, he promised it before time began. But in due time has manifested it through preaching, which he has committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that's what he says to Titus, Paul says this to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, or for this reason I left you in Hastings, or for this reason I left you in Siberia, or for this reason I left you where you're at, so that you might appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you, and complete that which is lacking. Now if a man be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Let me take a pause there. Talks about children. I just want you to know that tonight I met the two shyest girls I've ever met, Alexa and Charity. Okay? All right? I'm sure that you would agree, right? Now, just to be fair, Alexa said, my dad plays the drums, and he's going to show you really how it's done. Okay? That's what she said. And then she offered to fight me. Okay. All right? That's how it went. That's how it went down. Now, if a man be blameless... Yeah, I'm speaking the truth, aren't I? So, if a man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination... For a bishop or a pastor must be blameless as a steward of God. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not violent, not given to wine, not greedy for money, but hospitable. A lover of good things. <laughs> a lover of good things, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. Holding forth the faithful word as it has been taught him, that he might be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially among the circumcision, which are the Jews and the Jewish proselytes. Now one of them, a prophet of their own, said this, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they don't give heed to Jewish fables or the commandments of men who turn from the truth. See, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. 
But as for you, Titus, speak the things that are profitable for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, and temperate, sound in faith and love and in patience, and that the older women likewise be reverent in behavior, not given to much wine, not slanderers, but teachers of good things, that they might admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children and to be discreet and chaste, even homekeepers, good and obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And exhort the younger men, the younger men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing all integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, having sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the one who is opposed may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And admonish the bondservants, or the, or the working class. Admonish them to be obedient to their own masters, well-pleasing in all things. Not answering back, not back-talking, not stealing or pilfering, but showing all faithfulness and fidelity. So that they might adorn themselves with the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to every person teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In this present age. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might separate or purify for himself redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. These things exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And he gets pretty practical with the church here. And he says these types of things. He says, he says now, he says, let them, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities and to obey. He goes on, he says, and to be ready for every good work to be peaceable and gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish. I've heard some of the testimonies here, and if you heard mine too more, yeah, some of us were foolish, being disobedient and deceived, weren't we? <laughs> Serving various lusts and pleasures, living in envy and malice, hateful and hating one another. Doesn't that describe us, who we were before Christ? And he goes on, he says, but when the kindness and the love of God toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, that we should become heirs according to the hope. What a hope it is of eternal life. We just heard of some brothers and sisters who'd gone on in the Lord, and this is Memorial Day weekend. The hope of eternal life. He goes and he says this. He says, now, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to constantly affirm, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, because this is good and profitable for people. But avoid foolish disputes, endless genealogies, strivings and contentions about the law, for this is unprofitable and useless. And reject a divisive person, is what the scripture says. And I know you've had issues with this this year. Reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. 
He closes the book off with this. Now, when I send Tychicus or Artemis to you, be diligent to come to me, Nicopolis, because I've determined to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with all haste that they may lack nothing. And remind our people to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs so that they may not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet all those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his protege, one who he had discipled named Titus. And he gave us some great insights, and I just want to walk you through what that book said. As a matter of fact, in five, six different ways, seven times actually in the book, it talks about one simple thing. Here's what it talks about. It's a mega theme in a small book of the Bible, and it's all about good works. So here, if you're following out your sheet, embracing a life of good works does many things for us. Now, here's the deal. I've got my son, Caden, with me tonight. He's 14. Um, In his public school, and I'm sure in Hastings as well, you have all sorts of social justice issues going on. And then there's not a single person in the millennial generation or in Caden's generation or even in the Xer generation that hasn't been raised with this orientation that we want to do good. Now, we don't do good to earn favor with God. We, earn, we do good, and there's lots of ways for that to happen. We do good because we are Christians. We do good because it's the overflow of our heart. It is who we are, not what we're trying to earn. All right? So I don't know what upbringing you came out from, but I came out from one that was more of a view that would be called sacramental, which means I work to earn various aspects of God's grace. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that because God's grace is real in our lives, we overflow from our hearts doing good to others. The scriptures talk about it five specific times in positive, commanding ways in this book. Let me share some of those with you and apply them within your own practical scenarios. Here we go. First of all, embracing a life of good works, it does this. It reveals our understanding and practice of biblical truth. It reveals our understanding and practice of biblical truth. And here's how that goes down. Paul says this. Look in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, he says, and let the younger men be sober-minded. First of all, he says that. Don't let anything cloud your mind up. No substance abuses, nothing like that. Be sober-minded so you think straight in whatever context for the glory of God. Okay? So don't cloud your mind up. Be sober-minded. And then he goes on, he says this. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. And he tells us what that pattern of good works actually looks like. He says, be a pattern of good works. First, he says, in doctrine, showing all integrity and incorruptibility. Listen, I know this discipleship thing is coming your way. And I want to encourage you in it. Because actually, did you ever think of discipleship as a good work? Have you ever thought of it that way? The fact that I know what I believe, why I believe it, can tell others what I believe, could lead somebody to Jesus Christ, could lead somebody confidently to share with them what God has done in my life. Have you ever thought of that as a good work that's pleasing to God? He says this, that we would actually be incorruptible and have integrity in doctrine in what we believe. And I know this church takes that serious. That's why it's one thing that could be said of the well. 
You are gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. You have integrity in your doctrine. Praise God for that. It's one thing for Joe to know it. It's a whole other thing for the body to embrace it. Okay? It's one thing for it to flow from here. It's another thing for it to flow from you towards others. That's a whole different level. And he goes on and he says this, to to not only do good works in that way, he says, but in doctrine, having all integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. And then he says another way of doing good, to have sound speech. Wow. That no one can condemn. That's what he says. Having sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the one who is opposed might even be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Have you ever thought about withholding from gossip as a good work? Have you ever thought of it that way? Like to not participate in gossip or slander is actually pleasing to God. To have sound speech. To not have anything that could be said evil. Listen, um, sometimes it's just best just to be quiet, isn't it? And that's a good thing in the eyes of God. Just to remain silent. Take it to him. Does anybody struggle with that besides me? Yeah. Just to say, in my speech, I want to have sound speech. Okay? So there, that's number one. Embracing a life of good works, actually, it does reveal something about us. It reveals our understanding and practice of biblical truth. But it doesn't just end there. Embracing a life of good works does something else. It reflects our identity as Christ's people. Paul says this. He says, He says, the famous verse that many of you maybe even have heard on many occasions, he goes, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and listen to what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he would redeem us or buy us back or separate us and purify us so that we would be his own special people to what end? That we would be zealous for good works or eager to do good works. Doing good works is what we were actually created for. And it's, it's amazing that it reveals our identity. I asked Harley if I could borrow this, but let me tell you a little story. One time we were over in Siberia and Russia. This has been lived out on multiple occasions, but it was the middle of February, about 35 degrees below zero outside, and we were coming up over the mountains. Have anybody been to Wyoming or Montana? All right. So I, I, that's where we were at looked much like the front range of Montana. And you come up over the Rockies or something, you're coming down, and we were coming back from a supply city into our town. And it was about a six-hour drive, and it was cold out. And we had two cars full of supplies, except I had an open seat in mine, and the guy, the national pastor that I was able to train and, and bless it, just see him come to Christ and grow in the Lord, was a guy named Oyonol Mongush. Noel was driving behind me in a van. He had two open seats. And we saw three guys flagging us down. Now, Siberian, uh, they're more like, uh, they're, they're native-looking, Mongolian-looking, okay? And the, and the, and the worldviews have a lot of similarities. But these guys were standing on the side of the road, waving us down. I mean, it wasn't just a typical thumb out. No, they were saying, you got to stop, man. you got to stop. And we had already talked about this reality of, of doing good. And that was one major inroad into our community and into our society and to see people open up for the gospel's sake. And so we, uh, we stopped and we helped these guys. And the church was new. It was getting going. I think we had about 40 or 50. 
and we needed some supplies. And so on the way back, we had these three guys waving us down. So we stopped, and they were freezing. I mean, it was cold. They'd been a cold spell. And, uh, and we looked at them. We said, we're like, what are you guys doing here? And they looked at us, and they said, we're not And they said, we've been out fishing. Like, what? Yeah, we're on vacation. So I don't know if you do that when you're on vacation, 35 below. They'd been out for three days. They hadn't caught anything. They were cold and hungry, standing by the road. And so we just left them. I'm just kidding. We did not do that, okay? We did not do that. Uh, and so they're standing right there. We said, hey, Sadis, Sadis, get in the car. And, uh, and we had some tea. We had some bread. We had some snacks. We just fed them what we had. We were still two, three hours away from our town. And uh, so I had a dude named Piotr sitting in my car, and, and Oinol had two other guys. We're going down the road, and I looked over at Piotr, and I didn't know if he spoke Russian or Tuvan. So I started off in Tuvan, and I said, I said, Piotr, I said, where do you live, Piotr? And he said, I live over in Oktavarak. Where are you guys? And he tells me he works at the asbestos mine. And you see, he was open to hearing about Christ because he had had families, family members die of cancer. He told me that later on. But we were driving down the road, and we got to talking a little further. I switched over, and you run out of stuff to talk, small talk. And, uh, and I looked at him, and I said, Piotr, can I, can I practice my kumi on you? And uh, he looked at me, and he's like, kumi? Now, you've got to understand, in the Republic of Tuva, maybe some of you have seen this on TV. Maybe some have not. Um, but uh, anyway, the, uh, the throat singing of the Republic of Tuva is called kumi. And uh, it's rather fun. But anybody who has ever uh, maybe seen it on David Letterman or something, it's possible, but... Um, Kumi is like the heart language of the Tuvan people. And if you can do it, you've just torn down cultural barriers. So he looked at me, and he's like, here's an American driving me down the road in my land, and he wants to throat sing to me. And that's an odd request. But uh, I said, yeah, can I? And so here's how you do it. This is how you throat sing, just so you get a little lesson tonight. You ready for this? I gather I'm amongst an eclectic group. Okay, so I think you're going to, if you don't do it right now, I know you're doing it when you're alone later tonight, okay? Might as well get it out. Here we go. So everybody hum. Mm, mm, okay, now clear your throat. <clears> okay? <throat> now you do that together, and that's throat singing, okay? But in order to really do it appropriately, I had to warm up with Piotr. And Piotr knew it, so here's what I did. You start off, and you just warm up. Anyway, he goes like this. Hey. And if you're the one warming up, you're in luck because you're breathing out on them. But if they're breathing out on you, you better hope they ate something decent because it's pretty bad. <laughs> so you do it again and you get going. <sighs> now, they're a horse culture over there, okay? So they get running and they really get going and they, their music is fast. It's a good 4-4 four, four beat, 4-4 four, four rhythm, and, uh, and they really get going. So here's how it started off in there. Um, I just said, okay, here we go, Piotr, Dubai. And they have to start off with a word called shui, which is, means basically it's a horse word, giddy up. Okay? So that lets you get the song going. So it goes like this. Shui! <laughs>
about that time, Piotr was like, this American can do it. So then he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, yeah, so he starts singing something a little different, and he gets going on a whole higher range. going on the lower rhythm, and he's up high, and we are just looking like freaks going down the road, okay? That's how it goes. All right, everybody together now. Here we go. I'm just kidding. Okay. So, so we're going down the road, and, uh, and I tell you what, just doing that was a very simple kind of fun thing. I had no idea what would happen, how he would receive it, but we're singing Kumi going down the highway, and, uh, and uh, he looks over at me finally, and he says, Americanians. He's like American. Who are you? And why are you here? And, uh, and you know what? For the next two and a half hours, because he really had no other choice, he was in my car and it was a captive audience. But I had the opportunity to open up to him who I am. Not as an American, but as a follower of Jesus Christ and what that means in my life and why I was there to help see gatherings of transformed lives come together. People who had no hope to have hope. And he listened the whole time. And you know what? That dude came to the services many, many, many times over. We had a great time. I'm not quite sure if Piotr has come to know Christ, but I think God is drawing him to himself for salvation. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. The thing is, is when we embrace a life of good works, it actually does something. It reflects our identity as Christ's people. Think about it. When the doors of good time, when, when the door opens for you to do something good for somebody else, we get this opportunity to give God the glory, to share the hope that lies within us. And it could be odd. It could be really odd, like driving down the road when it's 35 degrees below zero, or it could just be helping your neighbor out, or it could just be inviting somebody to come over and play a game of kickball with you and your kids. It's that simple. Embracing a life of good works does a lot of things, but it also does this. It reinforces our need for stewardship and for generosity, okay? Stewardship and generosity. Um, check it out in chapter 3, verse 1, if you're looking at it with me, in Titus 3.1. He says this. He says, and remind them to be subject to rulers to, and, and, and authorities and to obey, he didn't say if you like it or anything. Just obey, be subject. And then he goes on, he says, and to be ready for every good work. Now, here's what happens in life. To be ready for good works, you have to have some kind of margin in your life. Listen, the other day, I found out something that I read something. Maybe you saw the same statistic. But it said most Americans right now would have a very hard time coming up with $400 in cash. That's what it said. Over half of Americans would have an extremely hard time coming up with $400 in cash. Now, money is not the only way that we do good works, but that was a telling sign that our nation as a whole has very little margin. How many of you like, when somebody comes up to say, hey, can you help me? How many of you like to say yes? Anybody with me on that? I love to say yes to people. I want to help people. But what do I need? I need to have time. Sometimes I need a little cash to help out. Sometimes I need a little something else. 
uh, maybe a little skill set. They're asking me for a specific reason. Am I willing to do what I do well to help? Doing good reminds us of our need for stewardship. Stewardship is how we manage all the resources that God has given us. It's, it's how we handle it all. And then also to have generosity. Be willing. Can I give of my time? Can I give of my skills? Embracing a life of good works, it really does. It reinforces our personal need for stewardship and generosity. And I just want to be honest with you. There were too many years in my life that my heart was to give, to give, to give. And it was just too much of a struggle. Just too much. And I just want to say this to you right now. I served as a missionary. You would expect missionaries are just going to be, you know, they're, they're not out there for the money. But missionaries have a responsibility to steward our resources just as well. And ministers have a responsibility to steward our personal resources just as well. And I have the responsibility to teach my kids to do the same. We've had that conversation, haven't we, Caden? He showed me his budget the other day. It's pretty awesome. And here's the deal. There are too many years even in my own life, even in times of survival. How many of you guys, don't answer this, don't even raise your hand, but do you resonate with me? I came out of a broken home. And from the age 14, I was on my own trying to survive. Just trying to survive. That's it. That's it. And without even recognizing it, I had a heart to do good. But I found myself being very greedy with my own resources. I just wanted to survive. The thing that was never given to me as far as provisions, I was scared and fearful to lose it. I was just scared. Okay? God had to break me of that. He really did. To say, how can I have some margin in my life? It really helped me. After a while, I finally just said, you know what? I am going to learn better than what I was taught. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn how to budget well. I'm going to learn how to put margin in my life because I like to say yes to people. Now, here's the deal. In your own life, I would just encourage you, ask that question to yourself. This is, this is an issue, this is an issue where, our, where our money is... I mean, that's where our heart is, okay? So ask yourself this one. How well am I doing with my own budget? How well do I have margin in my life to help others? Um, do I have margin in my life even to, to participate in the financial needs of my church, okay? I'm just talking to you as one that God had to break in repentance. To have stewardship, and it just reveals it. I, I want to do good. And embracing a life of good works, but it requires that stewardship and it requires a heart of generosity. Not just to give my skill sets, but sometimes it's materially too. I'll say a little bit more on that as we close, but I just want to give you that gentle, um, that gentle nudge, that challenge right there. That gentle one right now. Um, just by sharing a little bit what had to go on in my life. So embracing a life of good works it, 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 it reinforces our need for those things. But it also does this. It restates God's love to people. Why do we do good works? It's a command. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, and remind them. He goes, remind them to maintain good works. He says, remind those that, that those who have believed in God is literally what he says. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. He says, this is a faithful say, statement and worthy to be repeated and accepted. That those who believed in God. Here, how many, of, how many of us have believed in God? Yeah, praise God. But this is something that we would be careful to maintain. Not just maintain, but to actually be careful to do it. All right? 
So he says, this is good and it is profitable for people. When we engage in this type of a lifestyle, it restates God's love. How many of us have been the recipients of a good deed? How many of us? My daughter, my daughter fell ill on October 17th. And for the next 100 days, she was in the hospital. She went through three resuscitations. Her lungs collapsed. Okay, she was dead. Her blood was taken externally from her body through a machine called ECMO just to be oxygenated externally. And then she cardiac arrested three times and they had to pump her heart also with this machine. She was kept alive for nine days before she ever started making an upswing. You prayed with us. Thank you. You did good. God showed us power. Why? I know there's parents out there who sometimes lose their children. Why did, why did we not lose Kinsey, our daughter? Why did Caden not lose his sister? You know, I know that we learned how to pray boldly through this one. I know that. But I just think sometimes God reaches down on earth and he says, I can save you from your sins, but I have power on this earth as well. And I just want to remind you of that, that my kingdom is here. And the prayers of the saints make a difference. Thank you for joining us and doing good. Your doing that restated God's love to us in many ways. We had a church that we planted overseas, the whole Tuvan church. When it was all said and done, we had about 40 congregations that were started there. And, and about out of those congregations, there were about 12 of them that were indigenous, totally self-sustaining churches. And they worked to oversee the whole movement. The Republic of Tuvo underwent a 300% devaluation of their currency, 300% and 60% unemployment rates. And in the midst of all of that hardship with our family, you know what they did? They found a way. They came together and they took up a love offering and found a way to send support for our family all the way from Siberian Russia. I couldn't believe it. They could have sent 50 cents, you guys. I would have been bawling my eyes out. But they gave much more. They gave much more. And you know what? It was such a joy that later on, just a few months later, their mother church burnt down. It'd be like this church burning to the ground. Where do you meet? What happens? You've got you've to grow again. Their mother church burnt to the ground. And it was a great joy. Some of you may have seen it on our Facebook page. To raise support and to raise funds to send back over there. And our district just sent nearly five grand back to help them. And that coupled with other Russian believers and Russian churches on the West Coast and others. And we were able to raise enough to rebuild their building. Who wants to participate and do good? I think we all do. And it restates God's love. And God says this to us in Galatians 6.19. He said, do good to the 6-9. He says, do good to everybody. Do good to everybody. But especially to the household of faith, to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We find a need amongst ourselves. I have a sense that this community comes alive. I could kind of feel it when I came in the door. That's awesome. Let me give you the last one. Embracing a life of good works does this. It raises our degree of fruitfulness. All right? Raises our degree of fruitfulness. Here's what he says. If you follow along in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, And let our people also remember to maintain good works. First, let's just stop there. To maintain good works. The, the word actually translates back to exercising ourselves as if it was like a daily classroom exercise. 
to do good works as if it was something that you have to do. Anybody ever been in Boy Scouts? Anybody know what the slogan is? No. Do a good turn daily. Okay? Do a good turn daily. It was one of those things. Okay? Um, so do a good turn daily uh, is, is kind of what Paul is saying here. Let this be part of your daily practice. Maintain good works. But then he goes on and he takes it to a whole other level. And he says, and meet urgent needs. And he gives us the big why. Why do we do this? Why? So that you will not be unfruitful. I think you as the well want to be fruitful. I think we do. I want to close by leading you to one passage of scripture. And I want to give a final admonition on this one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8. We'll start in verse 6, actually. Verse, uh, actually, we'll start in, we'll start in verse 7. Now we'll start in verse 6. There we go. Here's the passage right here. Paul's talking to another new church plant. Just kind of like, just kind of like Crete. The, the island of Crete. Crete wasn't easy. Crete was full of a mess. Thessalonica was full of a mess. As a matter of fact, Thessalonica was probably full of those intellectual anal retentives, okay, that, that had to search out everything. They didn't ever believe anything firsthand. And that was a great trait of theirs, but they were, they were very, probably very academically oriented, and that was great, but it probably had its weaknesses as well. They scrutinized everything. And then you see in Crete, it talked to the grandparents. He says, be, be sober-minded. There were substance abuse issues going on all over the place in Crete. He reminded them many times to be sober-minded. There must have been an issue on this. He said, he said there, there were other things going on. I'm sure that the old men didn't know how to behave. The older women didn't know how to live a life, and they had to be reminded to actually admonish the younger women. The younger women struggled with loving their husbands and loving their children well. And the young men had a problem with self-control. And anybody who was going to be a pastor there, they had to say, is this guy violent? <laughs> okay. They had to do all these types of things. There was just a mess. People were in a mess. I think we can all relate to that. There's not a single one of us who came to Christ perfect or raised. We, we've all come from our own messes. And this is the same one. These guys came from a different mess. Thessalonians was a book written to people who, who scrutinized much. And they were yet, God, God blessed them. And he says this in verse 6. He says, he says now... Did we seek glory from men? He's talking about Paul, the church planter. So I want you to read this through the lens, even of somebody like me or somebody like Joe and Christy here, okay? The planters of the church. Did we come in and seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as other apostles of Christ? The demands that they could have made is like, listen, you either pay up or we're out of here. And this whole effort is done. Other apostles, they actually expected the church to ante up. They expected it to say, listen, if you got stewardship issues in your life, let's deal with that and let's get on it. We need a sustainability in our church that we do not have here yet. So Paul, he came in in a different way. As a matter of fact, I, it's very interesting. Some of you are going to relate to this differently than others. But he goes on and he says, he says, we didn't come in and demand things of you, in verse 6. We, we, we might have made demands as other apostles of Christ. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as nursing mother cherishes her own children. 
A nursing mother cherishes her own children. He goes, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. Literally, these folks worked other jobs. They came in, they made tents, they did things. And then this verse right here, he says it in the first part, like a nurturing mother, I'm coming to you. I don't know how you related to your mother and your father. Which one to you was the nurturing one? Was it the mother or the father? I heard this the other day. How many of your siblings? Who did your siblings lean towards? Who did you lean towards? If you didn't lean towards either, you might even be considered a lost child. I was a lost kid. Um, But the nurturing mother illustration, you may or may not relate to that. But he's talking about gentleness. He's coming in. I wanted to see this thing get off the ground. So I came in and I worked night and day. We loved you. We gave you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You were right there with us. And then he comes in in the next verses, not as a nurturing mother, but as a father, as a loving father. Look on the next verse in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What I'm talking about tonight, about embracing a life of good works and eventually how it brings about fruitfulness in a fatherly type of way, in a fatherly charge. And I realize many of you in here are older than I am. That's okay. In in, in a spiritual charge, I want to receive admonition from you just like you would receive it from me, and I want to receive it from Joe just like he would receive it from me. That's the way the body of Christ is. We are teachable. We receive and we give, and it's reciprocal. So this is the charge that I lay out. I lay out this. I said, everybody here wants to be fruitful. We want to embrace a life of good works so that we would be fruitful. This church will remain and grow in its fruitfulness when you have a fully released minister of the gospel being able to emphasize and give effort to this, to the discipleship, to the work of the ministry. Listen, there has been many churches. There have been churches that died and sold their properties so that this church could get started. There have been people in other churches around this state who have given to help this church get started. Now, as an admonition, I want to encourage you in that stewardship area. When God broke me, this is what I began to realize. I've been a Christian for how many years in my life? For 31. And even though we may earn more as we get different jobs and as we grow, and our tithe or our 10% may actually grow with that income, I thought, am I really exercising faith if I'm only giving 10%? Am I really doing that? Because the New Testament doesn't talk about the tithe in a legalistic manner. He says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so here's what I began to understand. As I believe that the Lord would have me personally increase what I give to him, not just based on a percentage that I may legalistically apply to my life, but what if that percentage grew? What if that percentage grew? 
What if instead of giving 10%, everybody said, my goal is to give 12? Or maybe 10 is the most you can give, or maybe 5 is the most you can give. But I'm going to encourage you to look at your budgets and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's looking at this but you. And I promise you, it's interesting. I come across other groups. I came across uh, churches in Kansas. It was an awesome, awesome church that sent out missionaries all over the world, a Mennonite church, Emmaus church. They've got missionaries everywhere. And my best friend comes from this church. And he says, yeah, Jim, you know what? Every year we receive, we receive a bill from the church because the church knows what our income is and the church bills us for a tithe. <laughs> I was like, you, gotta be, you have got to be kidding me, man. Anybody want that? Is any, no, nobody wants that. What we want is for this to be an act of worship. That's what it is. And I pray that that's what it is because here's the things. That in itself is a good work. To be stewarding your resources, generous. It helps you restate God's love to people. And ultimately, because we're generous and we're giving and we're releasing people for the work of the gospel ministry, we're more fruitful. The vision of this church, I know, is to be a church that plants other churches. And you won't plant other churches without generosity. And this church won't become self-sustaining without generosity. And I just want to encourage you as your brother in Christ who gives. I give to my local church and I give to church planting. And I give to many different things from my family now. And I'm so thankful that we have these opportunities. I just want to encourage you in your faithfulness in these ways as well. So I realize I come in new amongst you. I want to speak with you as a brother. And I realize a charge like that may be a little odd from somebody who's new. But I come to you as the district executive minister of the Converge Heartland District who helped to see this church planted. And we desire your growth. We desire your sustainability. We desire you to grow in your, in your discipleship relationships. And we desire, as a group of churches, that number 60 from North Dakota all the way down through Kansas. We desire you to reproduce because we don't have enough gospel-centered churches for the communities in this part of the country. Thank you for partnering with us in the gospel ministry. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that every resource we have has been given by you. Um, we don't have anything without you. And uh, I want to thank you that even the strength we have to do and to be kind to others, to do good, that it's from you. Every good, perfect gift comes from you, Lord. I realize that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you've actually prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, you guys, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads for a second. This is old school. But I want to ask you this. Is there anything on your heart that the Lord has laid on your heart to do good for somebody else, to steward your resources differently, to have an open conversation that you need help, does anybody, just raise your hand if, if the Lord has laid something on your heart, what your next step might be in this topic of good works. Does anybody, just, uh, just raise your hands if you, if you have something on your heart. Okay, I see those. It's not for me. It's really more about an accountability thing. So I'm going to ask you, if the Lord's laid something on your heart, I want you to write it down, okay? And I want you to perform the doing of it, to go ahead and fulfill it and do it. And may the Lord be glorified in your obedience to his promptings. 
Lord, we lay this out to you in Christ's name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.